good afternoon everybody uh, and welcome to Edwin Coe's webinar on NFTs. Um, thank you so much for, for, for attending. Um, so, sorry, so my, my, my name is Nick Phillips. I'm a partner in the intellectual property team at Edwin Coe and I'm going to be, a I'm going to be chairing the webinar this afternoon. Um, so NFTs, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that they are fast becoming part of our everyday life. Um, and increasingly often we're hearing stories about NFTs changing hands for, for millions of pounds, millions of dollars, or pop bands re releasing uh, their albums onto NFTs. But some of the key questions uh, I think are, what are they? Are they here to stay? Are there any particular legal uh, or tax issues um, relating to NFTs? And also, how do you go about valuing them? Well, uh, hopefully, we've got the answer to at least some of those questions today in, in this webinar. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to approach it from four angles. So um, we're going to look at tax considerations. We're going to look at how you go about valuing NFTs. Um, we're going to look at any sort of legal issues really concentrating on intellectual property issues and we're also going to look at the the whole the whole area around the sort of commercialization of nfts and what i'm going to do is i'll introduce those sessions one by one and so we've got four different sets of speakers um should be about an hour or so it please, please do please do raise questions as we go along if you, if you type your questions into the chat box um we we will be able to see them coming in and we will almost certainly, well, we will do our very best to answer as many as possible at the end. And if we can't, we will um, make sure we get back to you with, with answers to those questions. Um, so uh, our, our first speaker will be Johnny Fry. Johnny is the CEO and founder of Team Blockchain, which is a research and publishing firm focused on blockchain technology and digital assets. Now, I do particularly like the, the title of, of, of Johnny's presentation, uh, which is because it's a question I often ask myself, NFTs, are they a fad or do they offer real commercial opportunities? Johnny, over to you. Thank you, Nick. And uh, thank you colleagues for getting uh, the, the event organized and, and welcome to the webinar. Um, so essentially what we uh, what I'd like to do in, in the opening sort of uh, 15, 20 minutes is to have a quick introduction to look at non-fungible tokens. And really, what is all the fuss about? Um, you know, it seems wherever you turn, whether it's a football team or a rock band or e even a museum or a gallery, people are talking about it. Um, and certainly all the professional advisors, the accountants, the lawyers and the and corporate brokers and the like. Um, it, it's something people are, are engaged in and, and actually doing. We'll look at the, how the market's grown um, and also explore some of the different use cases because NFTs are not just about um, digitizing existing IP, whether it be um, a film or um, a piece of artwork, um, but looking other areas such as sort of online games. Um, we'll touch briefly on some of the challenges that NFTs face around tax and regulation. Um, and then finally look at other possible uses for NFTs and how these, arguably these digital certificates can be used. And then finally, we'll give you some ideas of how do you keep up to date? Because one of the things that you can guarantee with technology 
which is basically underpins non-fungible tokens, is nothing stays the same. So NFTs are moving and progressing, and we're seeing many different ways in which they are being used, and that's likely to continue. So we'll give you some ideas on how to keep up to date. Next, please. Okay, so just a bit of background to myself. Um, I, I was CEO of a public listed asset management company um, for over 20 years. And currently I'm chairman of a, um, of a, a business called Gemini Capital, which owns a Dublin-based USITS platform. So to put that into sort of plain speak, USITS are the sort of funds that you have in your ISA, in your pensions. And so they're investing in what we call real assets. They're investing equities, bonds. So it's nothing to do with digital assets at all. Um, and that means that um, for most of my working life, I have been personally regulated. And so we're very much approaching um, digital assets from a regulated framework. And how can you use some of the best parts of that regulation um, to ensure that investors are protected? And in the last um, six or seven years, um, set up a business called Team Blockchain, which Nick um, actually explained. We're basically a research and publishing business. So um, that, that's what we do, looking into how, where, and why the technology of blockchain is being used and digital assets, which range from sort of, um, some would argue, scuzzy, dodgy ICOs and cryptocurrencies all the way through to the digitization um, of national currencies through stable coins and central bank digital currencies. Next, please. Okay, so just a, a very brief sort of introduction. What are non-fungible tokens? Well, as essentially, they are um, assets which represent either a tangible or intangible asset, a, a real asset or a virtual asset, um, and the information is stored on a blockchain. Um, unlike the World Wide Web, there isn't one blockchain. There are literally several hundred different types of blockchains, and different blockchains are used for different things. Um, but the thing about a non-fungible token is that it, it's unique. Um, so it's not like having a pound coin whereby there are many, many pound coins or a bar of gold. Each non-fungible token in itself represents something unique, and that has some quite interesting advantages and, and some quite interesting attractions, especially um, in the luxury goods sector, which we'll, we'll obviously come on to. But before we sort of you know, look at the non-fungible tokens, I think one of the things that perhaps is worth bearing in mind is that many of us come to um, look at um, digital assets, blockchain technology, and we come with um, a little bit of information, a little bit of knowledge. And very often people think of blockchain um, and then they'll think of, OK, well, blockchain and Bitcoin and, you know, sort of fairly nefarious activities that are going on. But I think that what we need to look at is the underlying technology that is fueling things like non-fungible tokens. And then how can that be used in different assets for commercial or indeed for the benefit of society as a whole? But do remember, because it's digital, it, it's like a, a fingerprint and it leaves a digital footprint. And a good example of that is um, last year, Colonial Pipeline was held to ransom. And this is basically the pipeline that sort of connects the east coast of the USA. And at one stage, it looked like there was a lot of um, petrochemical products that were, just wouldn't be able to get through. So a ransom was paid, but the FBI have managed to actually recover and seize back 85% of the ransom that was paid out. And the reason they could do that, and it became the US Secret Service sort of biggest um, reclaim that she got was because it left that digital footprint where they could track and trace. And that has encouraged that these, in, certainly the US to come out with the, um, the claim, cryptocurrency is not inherently criminal. And the reason I'm talking about cryptocurrency in the same breath as non-fungible tokens is because there is, there is a degree of overlap and I'll explain that as we go through. 
The other thing I think um, about non-fungible tokens, they've come at a time when more and more attention is being focused on the metaverse. Um, and this is something which you may think at the moment, well, this isn't going to implicate me. I don't do a lot of online gaming or the last thing I want to do is actually spend more time online when I've been working it during the day. Um, but we'll come on and show you perhaps why this could actually be quite a big and growing sector. And non-fungible tokens are seen as certainly a way of transferring value in that area. And, and the final thing I'd just like to point out is that, um, as, as Nick said, you know, are they a fad? Are they going to go the way that we've seen other uh, technologies go, um, other means go? Well, arguably, I think that they've gone beyond just being of interest to actually being adopted and used uh, quite aggressively by many commercial entities. And I think this is something which we're going to see going forward. And we'll give you a few pointers as some ideas that might be useful in the past going forward. Next, please. OK, so we have to have an understanding of the technology that fuels and issues these non-fungible tokens. And this is where we um, really we don't want to get too technical about this. And, and I know Nick loves this definition. You know, uh, basically, a blockchain is simply an Excel spreadsheet on steroids. Um, and what we mean by that is that it's just a database. So let's not get all excited about it. But it but the steroid bit is because instead of being held in one place, it's held in many, many different places. It's decentralized. And the other aspect is that the information is held um, securely in a cryptographic fa fashion. So that means that it's harder to actually break in. So automatically, it means it's fantastic for disaster recovery, which is one of the key things that regulated companies um, need to be aware of. Um, you know, that's one of the things the regulators always actually asking for. And if there's one thing that I would like to leave with you this afternoon, and that is when you hear the word blockchain, think of the word transparency and think of the word trust, because in the last what six, seven years of being involved in this sector myself, it seems that every time you look at an application, it comes back to the use of blockchain, the use of something like a non-fungible token can actually give you a lot more transparency. And therefore, you can have some confidence and trust in, in actually what's going on. Next, please. So what is the fuss about? Well, we've got really non-fungible, um, the non-fungible token market has really come from very, very little. Last year, uh, assessed to be something like 25 billion. Um, in three or four years' time, I reckon it could be something in excess of 80 billion. I think that 80 billion actually is going to grossly be understated. I think there's going to be a lot more money or a lot more assets which will be held um, using the technology of non-fungible tokens. That doesn't mean those assets will necessarily be traded on some sort of digital exchange, but I think as a technology, we'll start using this um, to a much greater extent than um, we currently believe we will do um, where we're sitting right now. Next, please. But, but why are people getting involved in it? Well, I'd argue that it's greed. You know, if, if all of a sudden you've, you can create some sort of digital artwork, and if you look at the video of a chap called Beebles, who actually created um, this thing which sold for 69 million, he thought it would go if he was lucky for a couple of million. And the look of a complete incredulity when it went to 10 million and then 25, then 50, then 69 million, he couldn't believe it. Um, so the fear of missing out, FOMO, we've seen a lot, lot of people get involved in this sector. There's something called Board Ape Yacht Club. It's a picture of an ape looking thing as a cartoon. I don't get it, but the average sale price is £344,000. But then I don't get Tesla. Why is Tesla one company worth more than most of the other motor manufacturers? And it's about confidence. It's about belief. 
And if people have a belief and they think it's worth more, that's why you see, you know, Van Gogh's sunflowers being sold for crazy prices. And that's very similar that we're seeing in the non-fungible token market. But one thing I'd just like to remind people of is that um, the British artist Damien Hirst came out with a collection of 10,000 um, basically pieces of paper with dots on, and he called it the currency. And he launched it with great fanfare with Mark Carney, the ex-governor uh, ex of the Bank of England. And he issued um, 10,000 of these at $2,000 a, a pop. So yeah, very nice too. He made 20, 20 million pounds last July. And he said, would you like one of these bits of paper or would you like a digital version, a non-fungible token? If you want the non-fungible token, then we will destroy the paper. If you want the paper version, we'll destroy the digital version. And it was interesting, I asked both of my children in their late 20s, what would you like? And they said, Dad, why would you ask? Of course, we want the digital version. We can have it on our phone, on our laptop. We can have it on our screen that isn't a TV screen. It's a, it's a screen that we can display our pictures and what we own, you know, virtually on, on, you know, in, our, in our bedroom or in our lounge. So I think that gives an indication of how people use and want these different things. And slightly annoyingly, um, one of these sold for $120,000 within a couple of days. So some lucky devil paid 2000 made 120000 And it's that sort of crazy returns that encourage people and has caught people's attention, arguably. Next, please. But it, it's not just about repackaging intellectual property. It, there, there's a lot more to it. And it gives the ability for artists. So every time one of those um, currency uh, NFTs for Damien Hirst was actually sold to a second buyer, he would have got a very small royalty. So what we're now doing is turning um, intellectual property similar to music in the film industry. So you get an ongoing secondary income. And that's very, very valuable. You think of all the museums and art galleries, which typically only display 5% of their collections, they can have the whole lot uploaded and museums like the British Museum, that's exactly what they're doing. They're uploading the whole of their collection. And then if you want to buy a particular quirky thing in a digital format, you, you can do so. Um, Michelangelo's Donitondi, which, you know, it's the first time that the Uffizi Gallery in Florence actually sold a non-fungible token for $175,000. That was the equivalent when the museum was shut due to COVID to over 5,000 visitors. So you can now start to see why museums and galleries are getting in on non-fungible tokens. And we've all got other examples, you know, carbon offsets, givers, classic cars, real estate. Um, we've seen the Premier League. And interesting, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the Serie A, um, the Italian Football League, actually giving away tokens in Africa, gave away 10,000 tokens so that they could watch a football match using a non-fungible token effectively as a ticket, as access to actually watch it. Next, please. I mentioned earlier on the metaverse, and, and there's a small little bank in America called Citicorp, um, or Citigroup now. And, you know, they, they claim that the metaverse could be worth up to 13 trillion. And what they're saying is all the different examples here. Now, we've just got, you know, one in here of, um, you know, sort of digital events and tourism. But look at all the other different things here. There's nothing about gaming here. Education, healthcare, smart manufacturing. So this is where what we're going to see is more and more of society going over and using, and I, I believe it's Accenture now, the first literally three or four weeks of the, your induction course as, a, as a, a new recruited Accenture, you're spent, heaven forbid, with a great big pair of goggles on it, you know, in the metaverse, meeting your colleagues in Paris or Berlin or Amsterdam or, or wherever, 
and actually really getting inside what they're doing and how they're doing it. So, and, and if you want to actually transfer and trade value, I think non-fungible tokens are going to prove to be a very valuable tool in that area. Next, please. And not, well, who's it? It's Frankie went to Hollywood. Now it's NFTs that go to Hollywood. And again, we're seeing um, Anthony Hopkins here starring in a film called Zero Contact, and they're using non-fungible tokens as a way to help fund and create the money to be able to create a film. And this is just one of a number of examples. So as an NFT um, holder, you'll be able to see perhaps uncut um, images of the film. You'll be able to have exclusive access to uh, merchandise, or you'll be able to actually see the film that no one else can. Next, please. So here's just a, a small list of some of the different people. I've got to be honest, David Beckham, 9 billion social media impressions per annum. Wow, that's, that's a lot of eyeballs. And, and he's actually um, involved in one of the digital exchanges where he's put his 9 billion worth of impressions, say, I'm engaged, I'm involved. This is very much as I see the future. Um, so as, as, as one very well-known international um, ex-footballer, um, married to a, um, a top spice, or what was it, Nick? What was the name of the singer? I'm spice sure girl. I would know, Johnny. Posh spice. Posh spice. That's the <laughs> one. That's the one. Um, so yeah. So I, I just pointed out as an example of um, of you know the sort of um, the celebrities that got involved in this and putting their weight behind it. For some of you aren't familiar. We've also seen the UK Premier Football League, um, which has huge international reach. And there's more people that watch. Manchester United, for example, um, then, you know, there's literally hundreds of thousands every week compared to the tens of thousands that would attend the football game. So it's a huge reach that we're seeing with this technology. Next, please. The online gaming sector. And you probably think, well, so what? Well, um, you know, there's this funny thing called Axie Infinity um, developed in Vietnam. And at any one time, you know, they've literally got tens of thousands of people playing this game. And 40% of the players are, for whatever reason, based in the Philippines. And they have been earning, you know, up to $50, $100 a day. And to put that into context, the average daily income in the Philippines is under $10 a day. So people are actually, it's more profitable to stay at home and play a game than it is to actually go to work. Well, with COVID, they couldn't go to work. So they were earning money. So we're now beginning to see online gaming. And, the, and we already have heard that um, Microsoft, who just spent the biggest acquisition ever, $68 billion odd dollars to buy Activision Blizzard. And they're polling the, the people that play on their online games, saying, look, if we gave the ability to buy and sell your, I don't know, your, your swords, your sort of, your invisible shields, your houses, you know, whatever it is in their game, you could then actually make money by playing. So we're seeing this whole era of um, pay to play coming on more and more. Next, please. But as with ever, it's, it's, it's not all one way street. You know, there, there are challenges, um, even the likes of sort of, you know, TikTok, um, which is taking sort of, you know, one of, one of the fastest growing uh, sort of social media and engagement channels. You know, they've, they've struggled to actually um, commercialize this um, and have been working on a number of different ways that they can try and get around it. And every time an NFT is traded, Yes, it can create an income stream. And, and I, I, I know Nick's going to touch on this with Marianne later on, but whose who's income stream is that? Who really owns the IP? And, and that's a challenge um, that, you know, people are going to get their heads around. You may have bought the NFT, but actually do you, in many cases, you don't actually own the IP for other assets and other ways to use it. Um, rug pulls, that, that isn't something you do when, in, when someone's on your rug in the, in, the, in the kitchen and you want them to fall over. This is basically a scam. They set it up and then, 
they that once the money's up, once the actual token is up, they pull it and it, it's valueless and it's worthless. You're always going to get nefarious actors when money's involved. That always happens. That's why we need regulation. And the other thing I think worth bearing in mind that there is, um, in the same way in the cryptocurrency market, we have um, some 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 very um, some risks around the over reliance on something like Bitcoin. We also have the risks in the non fungible market, arguably, whereby eighty percent of um, the, the sort of turnover is with one particular platform called um, OpenSea, and you'll see seventy percent of NFTs on OpenSea's platform don't have any sales. So first of all, you've got to get onto that platform, but that's not a guarantee that your NFT will actually make any money. So something it, it's not a sort of panacea by any means. Next, please. And then, and then touching on sort of other things that you need to look at, um, how do you value IP? And, and later on, um, we, we've, got, we've got Thane, who's going to be talking a little bit about that, but that is, it is always difficult. How do you value goodwill? How do you value an intangible asset um, and that's very much what you have with, with non-fungible tokens. Atomic swaps, that isn't when you swap one power station for another. It's literally when sort of one person can sort of ping over from one mobile phone to another um, the assets. Well, then do you know whether Johnny has given it to Nick or is Nick giving it to Marianne? Where, where is it? Where, where, and it, can you actually tra track it through? There are big concerns around um, anonymity because what we don't want to do is, is create this new asset class and find that it's being used by... Um, people carrying out nefarious activities. I think out of all of these, though, the, the, the biggest one that I would state is that I suppose it's more of a question. Are we seeing national boundaries actually become less and less relevant? You know, there, there's a number of people um, on this um, event today. We have very little idea where you physically are. You, you could be in Turkmenistan, you could be in Cyprus, you could be in New York. Um, or you could be in somewhere, you know, nice and sunny like London today. We don't know. And, and therefore, when you're trading online in a virtual environment, you don't know necessarily who you're dealing with and where they're coming from. And some countries, cryptocurrencies and non-fungible tokens, they are illegal. And other countries, they are completely legitimate and you can trade them. Some countries, um, they are recognized as legally as property. Other countries, there is no legislation and there is no guidance as to whether if there is some legal dispute, whether you'd be able to actually reclaim them. But I suppose finally, caveat emptor, buyer beware. And if something looks too good to be true, unless you really want to do it, just you know, be careful not to get caught up with that, as I've talked about before, fear and greed and get engaged in it. Next, please. And I, I was going to talk about how NFTs are taxed, but I understand Sean has turned up. So Sean's going to talk about that um, a bit later on. But in essence, what we have is they are taxed in different ways in different countries. And I think I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And bear in mind that the turnover of non-fungible tokens is now attracting interest. And indeed, going back to the Philippines, the Philippine government have changed their tax rules to ensure that they can start taxing players that are playing Axie Infinity because they suddenly realised there's several hundreds of millions of tax they could be um, taking back into their coffers. Next, please. Now, I, I did talk to you a little bit at the very beginning about non-fungible tokens and cryptocurrencies. And the reason I use them in the same breath is that I'd just like you to read that, um, that first definition from the FSA. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I have the pleasure of working with a number in the US and the UK. And I would propose that a non-fungible token could be argued to be a crypto asset. Now, I know there are a number of lawyers that have gone on the record to say, oh, no, no, it depends on the asset. If you're going to create a non-fungible token 
out of a non-regulated asset, then the non-fungible token itself doesn't become regulated. I, I would suggest you look at the definition and you may find out, but are the FSA really going to start fining Nike, Gucci, Burberry? Are they going to have a crack at the British Museum or the UK Premier Football League? One hopes not. They've got better things to do. But again, I think, again, this is why you need proper legal advice to make sure, especially as a company, you, you stay on the right side of the actual law. And then I've just given a couple of examples of what they're actually, um, their status in, 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 other, in other countries. Next, please. So coming towards the end of what I'd like to talk about, if we're not going to see non-fungible tokens embraced in their entirety by um, regulators, because either they don't want to or they can't because people are creating non-fungible tokens in a foreign jurisdiction and they're being bought here in the UK or vice versa. I wonder whether we go back to our dear friend Marie Antoinette, who's the ex-queen of France, who actually came out with the expression, nothing is new, but what has been forgotten. And with respect to the younger people listening to this group, they probably won't remember the Securities Investment Board in 1986, where it was set up to start to bring in regulation into the financial services sector. Because prior to that, we had a, a bunch of old duffers walk around with bowler hats and feather pens saying, my word is my bond, you can trust me. And if I stitch you up, the, the club, the city, they'll make sure that we look after you because the reputation is too much and the damage is too great. And, and that sort of a very deregulated environment was what has existed really for, for many, many years. And we saw that deregulation even across much of Europe until the 2008 crisis, where we started bringing much more rules and regulations. But I wonder whether we're going to see non-fungible tokens being um, rated a little bit like Airbnb. So if I want to go to someone's house as a, as a, as a potential guest, they can look and say, well, oh no, sorry, but you've never, you've got no rating. You've never stayed somewhere or um, you've got some really dreadful ratings. You know, you don't make your bed and you spill the coffee or whatever you may well do. Um, and, and, you know, we see this also the same with sort of eBay, you know, you get, you get ratings. So I wonder whether we're going to have some, the community um, will actually set up some sort of rating system to almost protect themselves. So, so self-regulation, I don't know, maybe, maybe not will come through. Next, please. So in terms of possible future uses, um, I, I, I suppose I'd like to first of all go to the, the last point, first of all, and that is um, the UK are great at inventing games like football, rugby, tennis, and we keep on flipping you, losing them, you know, but one of the things we are good at is that we are actually very good and well-respected with our legal system. And we find many, many legal disputes being settled by Indians, Chinese, Russians, Americans, and they're settled here in the UK courts. Well, now the fact that we have ruled that non-fungible tokens are legal property and you can track and trace and perhaps put injunctions um, to get it back to the rightful owner. I wonder whether we're going to see um, more cases like that being tried here in the UK. Um, the other final thing, because I'm conscious of time, is that um, just think for a moment if you had um, your car and your car had a digital certificate of its insurance, its previous owners, its service history, and all that was held in a digital format, it'd be very easy for you then to just to scan it using smart contracts and say, yes, Johnny does own that car. There is no finance in it. It hasn't been written off by an insurance company. Therefore, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's worth buying the car. And, and the same way you could do that with um, property. And, and there's no reason why you can create a digital certificate. Um, out, out of property and the like. So, so that, that's, the, that's some future possible ideas that we've gone through, you know, lotteries, um, you know, the loyalty market. These are all very big areas which potentially non-fungible tokens could find themselves being used. 
Next, please. So in terms of sort of some, some closing thoughts, um, I, th I think digital ownership is absolutely fundamental for the metaverse, which looks like it's going to grow. Um, any owner that has IP, I, I would really strongly recommend you look at the how you might be able to re-commercialize, repackage IP that you already earn, because there is a potential not only to earn an initial fee for selling it, but an ongoing income every time it's then sold and moved along. But the trouble is, is that there is a blurring of the lines between sort of digital securities or digital assets. And we start to stray into, you know, are you creating a collective investment scheme and using an NFT as a proxy? So again, caution um, is certainly the byword. Um, and it's going to create, uh, for the regulators and lawyers, it's going to create bonanza potentially. But it's something to watch out for because I don't think it's, it is totally clear cut. Next, please. And then finally, as we sort of intimated, there's lots and lots of different examples. Um, and, and here at Team Blockchain, we produce a weekly analysis, which basically gives sort of insight, no recommendations, no investment advice. It looks at different jurisdictions, different industries, showing how, where and why digital assets and blockchain technology is being used. And then we make money about it because we have companies that license to use the, use the content. Individuals can get it. Um, knowing that the information is completely verified by lots and lots of hyperlinks to different publications. Um, and, that, and that's basically what we do as a business. So I will end there with, with my, my brief advert and hand it back to Nick. Johnny, thanks very much. Re really, really fascinating introduction to, to the world of NFTs. And uh, as you know, I will be borrowing your definition of blockchains as a Excel spreadsheet on steroids, which I, which I like very much indeed. So watch this space for that one. Um, ne next up, we have uh, myself and my colleague, Mariana Ryan. Uh, Mariana and I are intellectual property lawyers in the IP team at Edwin Co. And we are going to be talking to you about NFTs and things, um, things IP. So Mariana is going to be talking mostly about copyright, and I will pick up on some particular trademark issues. So I shall hand over to Mariana. Thank you very much, Nick. Hi, everyone. Um, so on the issue of NFTs and copyright, I suppose the first thing to clear up is that a purchase of an NFT does not in itself transfer the underlying copyright, which stays with the original rights holder. As already mentioned by Johnny, an NFT is effectively just metadata about an artwork and not an actual artwork itself. And therefore, a question exists of whether one can actually own an NFT and whether an NFT is in effect a property. Uh, remarkably, there has been a recent case law on this in the UK. Um, so Miss Lavinia Osborne um, has discovered that two of her Boss Beauties NFTs have been unknowingly and without her consent removed from her MetaMask wallet, which is basically a digital crypto wallet. And before this case, it was uncertain whether an NFT could in fact be even regarded as property. But in this case, the High Court of England and Wales stated that NFTs are to be treated as property. They can therefore be bought, sold, even stolen, licensed, inherited, etc. Uh, but this is subject to the caveat that the property status of an NFT does not extend to the underlying content that an NFT represents. This may have been an expected outcome for many, but it's still good to have this sort of formal confirmation from courts uh, that the courts are ready to protect property rights of NFT owners. 
Um, so basically the ownership of an NFT does not mean the ownership of an underlying asset, and that's a very important thing to note. Uh, by law, an assignment of the original copyright must be made in writing. So until there is an actual assignment agreement between the parties, copyright in the underlying work will remain the property of the creator. Alternatively, copyright can also be licensed, which does not transfer the ownership of the copyright, but rather provides a licensee with the right to use the work subject to the terms of a particular license, which can be varied, but this is not something we, can, we will be talking about now. So the purchaser of an NFT will normally receive only a link to a digital copy of the underlying word artwork, plus sometimes also a digital copy of the artwork itself. So what one is buying is therefore essentially a unique signature linked to the artwork, and uh, the purchaser does not acquire any rights to the underlying artwork itself. Um, so there may also be possibly a very limited license to use the work to the extent necessary to enjoy uh, the right to this NFT. So this can be compared to perhaps purchasing a picture from an art gallery. Um, you can only purchase it, for example, to display in your uh, home or in your office, but you're not uh, purchasing it to produce merchandise items with it. So same thing is applicable to an NFT. Um, so copyright infringement is indeed a risk when it comes to minting new NFTs. Uh, if one considers an NFT which uh, reproduces a piece of artwork, then the copyright in that artwork will be infringed if the permission of the copyright owner, which is usually the artist, is not first obtained. This may be less clear-cut when the NFT uh, does not reproduce the underlying artwork, but um, that there is um, that the underlying artwork that is where the NFT does not contain the digital copy of the artwork. In those circumstances, there may well be the communication right rather than the reproduction right uh, that is infringed because it may be argued that the minting of the new NFT constitutes the making of that artwork available to the new public, which was not previously envisaged by the artist. In practical terms, therefore, it may be prudent for everyone considering acquiring an NFT to make inquiries first to make sure um, that the reproduction or use of the underlying artwork uh, has been really authorized by the original artist. Uh, this may be a bit cumbersome, but indeed this is um, quite important to do, especially when um, acquiring an NFT that's worth, that's worth a lot of money. Um, so the main benefit for artists is that NFTs can create a potentially infinite revenue stream. That was also mentioned briefly by Johnny. So NFTs provide not just an opportunity to earn money from their creation, but also provide artists with an opportunity to receive potentially unlimited amounts of royalties from each subsequent resale of that NFT. Um, this is, however, as far as I'm aware, subject to the caveat that you are reselling this NFT on the same platform on which it was minted, because if not, then you may need an additional agreement to secure that royalty right. Um, so this is because the terms of an, uh, on which the NFTs are traded usually provide for royalties to be paid to the creator on each subsequent trade. So this makes NFTs particularly attractive for online content creators such as digital artists and game designers. Um, there has been an interesting copyright case um, involving NFTs, uh, which is currently ongoing in the US. Um, so this involves uh, Miramax and Quentin Tarantino. Um, so Quentin Tarantino has collaborated with uh, STRT Labs to create an exclusive behind-the-scenes NFT collection based on, his, um, on Miramax's 1994 blockbuster hit Pulp Fiction. 
Um, so seven of NFTs, uh, seven of these NFTs uh, provide access to archival and never before seen Pulp Fiction footage, which technically is the property of Miramax. Because the NFT ownership does not imply intellectual property ownership, Tarantino is not really selling the video footage, but selling access to that footage, which Miramax owns under the terms of the original option agreement dated back to 1993. And of course, the original option agreement um, grants Tarantino some limited rights to publish his thoughts and opinions on making a pulp fiction, but Miramax has also the right to 25% on any merchandise uh, revenue that's um, raised by Tarantino uh, from the copyrighted material. What is not certain, however, is whether an NFT can be considered a form of memorabilia um, and can be covered by the terms of this original option agreement, as you may expect. Back in 1993, there were no NFTs and no one could really predict any sort of outcome like this. Um, so it is yet to be decided by the courts as to whether the original agreement really stretches to this new technology. Um, so the case law is yet to be resolved in America. Um, and we will, we are yet to see whether Tarantino will have to share uh, profits of this um, NFT sales that he generates uh, with Miramax. Um, however, we can already see that at the moment, um, Quentin Tarantino only managed to sell uh, one uh, of the seven NFTs uh, for, as far as I remember, $1.1 million. And SCRT labs have made the decision to freeze the uh, sales of the leftover six NFTs for the time being, possibly pending their dispute with Miramax. So it already has damaged uh, the reputation of the whole project, which is also something that's um, to be aware of, I suppose. Mm. So another interesting idea is that the NFTs can also be used to certify authenticity of the physical goods, and that may be particularly attractive for that reason to the luxury goods industry. So this feature, for example, was explored by StockX, um, and there is um, another litigation between Nike and StockX. So StockX were using uh, NFTs of real-life real life Nike shoes uh, to provide proof of ownership and authenticity to the owners of these physical shoes. Uh, with regard to the uh, NFTs inventors, um, although the purchaser is only buying the sort of digital signature of their favorite artist rather than the actual copyright in the artwork or indeed the artwork itself, uh, the inherent uniqueness of NFTs still makes them very attractive for the investors who are thinking to benefit from their resale value. Uh, although some of the NFTs failed to sell um, subsequently for as much as their resale value, some experts say that the secondary market is growing even much faster than the primary market, in particular on super rare. And some NFTs have really been flipped, um, that's how they call the <laughs> process, uh, flipped to generate an even uh, bigger value on the subsequent sale. Uh, as a drawback, however, um, NFTs are too new um, to be regulated as yet, and therefore they are an easy target for abuse and fraud. So many art artists have unfortunately recently uh, become victims of NFT fraud uh, when NFTs of their artworks have been um, sold for thousands of pounds without their knowledge or consent. So the novelty of the blockchain technology and NFTs in particular makes them difficult to understand by the general public, which of course uh, also uh, makes it easy for fraudsters. Um, so one of the biggest challenges for the right holders uh, is likely to be the actual monitoring of NFT marketplaces for such fraudulent, fraudulent postings. 
So we may see some sort of inventive technical solutions from software companies that are offering online monitoring of NFT marketplaces. So similar thing currently exists, for example, for trademark monitoring. So there might be some similar services like that offered for NFT, uh, for NFTs. Um, as it is with um, other crypto assets, uh, the problem of identifying the actual infringer is also likely to be a difficult task, and it is with the NFTs. So this can also raise uh, challenges for um, trademark and copyright owners who are um, thinking, thinking to go after uh, the infringers. So this is all for me on the copyright issue. Thank you very much. Next slide, please. Yeah, thanks very much, Mariana. Uh, so from copyright, we move to trademarks. And I wanted just to deal with one specific issue really on trademarks, which is an issue that we are seeing quite a lot of uh, as an IP practice. And that is that is really the question of whether your traditional trademark portfolio is protecting uh, the use of your brand in relation to NFTs and indeed in, in, in relation to use on virtual marketplaces, uh, the, the, the metaverse. So I suppose if we put that into some context, if you are a manufacturer or a retailer of goods, if you're a Nike or a Burberry or a Puma, your trademark portfolio will tend to be um, directed towards uh, protecting your physical goods. So you probably have a registration in class 25 for clothing and footwear, um, uh, maybe a few other classes, class 18 for bags and holdalls, and you'll probably have a registration in class 35 for the sort of retailing of, of clothing or the retailing of, of footwear. But you won't have anything which specifically deals with NFTs and you won't have anything which specifically deals um, with, you know, with, with the use of that brand in relation to virtual products in, in, the, in the metaverse. So what we, are seeing, what we are seeing in practice is a number of these, these brand owners uh, essentially reviewing the trademark portfolios they have and then looking to supplement what they already have with some protection which is specifically geared towards protecting NFTs and also the sale of virtual products in the metaverse. So we are seeing a real sort of increase in trademark applications in classes which are traditionally reserved for sort of software. So a lot of class nine applications, uh, class 42 for sort of software services and also class 41 for entertainment services, which I think is more sort of aimed directly at the metaverse. Um, so as I say, a real uptick in trademark applications, particularly in the US, um, but also at the UK and at the EU trademark offices as well. You know, and companies, big brand owners such as Burberry, Maybelline, Abercrombie and Fitch and Skechers, all, all piling into this idea of expanding their protection to move into areas uh, specifically aimed at NFTs uh, and the metaverse. Now, I suppose one of the um, one of the potential problems with that is that the way the trademark system is organised 
is that there's almost sort of a ready separation between different companies using the same brands. Yeah, so the obvious example is Polo. So we have different companies selling Polo motor cars, Polo mints, and, and Polo shirts. And the danger is that if everyone now sort of gravitates to protection in class nine or, or, or class 42, there's, there's, much, there's a much greater chance of conflict between those brands that have traditionally coexisted. And, and indeed, a lot of those companies will also have sort of coexistence or licensing agreements, um, which may well preclude uh, expansion into, into those different areas, or at least make it very different, make it a bit more difficult than you might, than you might expect. Um, so in terms of, of how that works, there is a there are, there are a couple of cases uh, which illustrate the problem. And if I just sort of give you the facts of one of those cases, which I, which I think does illustrate it quite well. Now, I should say it's a, it's a US case, and it's also a case which hasn't reached a judgment yet. But I think the facts are, are, are quite pertinent to, to what's going on in the marketplace generally. And that's the Hermes and Mason Rothschild case. So Hermes, obviously, very well-known manufacturer of, of handbags and other sort of fashion items, and particularly well-known for, um, for their Birkin handbags, which they've sold for a number of years. Uh, along come Mason Rothschild, and they produce a series of 100 NFTs uh, for something called the Meta Birkin. And what these Meta Birkins are is essentially a sort of representation of something that looks quite similar to the, Birkin, to the Hermes Birkin, but is covered in either a sort of faux fur type covering or, or, or a different pattern. And I should, what I should say is that Hermes have no interest at all, as far as I'm aware, have no interest in NFTs or the metaverse. And similarly, Mason Rothschild don't have a physical handbag that, that they're only selling. Um, they're only selling NFTs. But Hermes not very happy about this, um, particularly because the 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 meta the meta Birkin uh, is uh, the meta Birkin NFTs are changing hands for vastly more money than 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 the Hermes Birkin handbags. So Hermes complain and they sue Mason Rothschild in the U.S. courts. And essentially what they say is that there is, there is a similarity between real world handbags and what Mason Rothschild is doing with NFTs. And to back that up, they say there is confusion happening. And to make it more interesting, that's not confusion in the real world, that's confusion in the metaverse. And this and the sort of the sort of inflated price of Mason Rothschild's NFTs is being driven not by the artwork of Mason Rothschild, but by this sort of assumed mistaken connection between Hermes and Mason Rothschild. So people look at these NFTs and they think they're either sort of they're either being put out there by Hermes or they are in some way associated with or connected to um, the, the Hermes brand. 
Um, so as I say, that 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 case is 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 going through the US courts, but certainly the um, the outcome of it will be very interesting when it comes to sort of the certainly the rights of brand owners and the freedom that uh, people minting new NFTs and trading in the in the metaverse have. One other interesting thing about this is that um, I mean Johnny mentioned OpenSea as one of the bigger uh, platforms for trading NFTs, and one of the things that uh, Hermes did was complain to OpenSea, and OpenSea actually pulled the Mason Rothschilds NFTs. So they're no longer traded on OpenSea, which led to a which, which led to an almost immediate collapse in Mason Rothschild's, um, the price of Mason Rothschild's NFTs. So I suppose as a, as a practical alternative to going to the expense of going through the courts, there may, there may well be the possibility of uh, putting some pressure on one of these trading platforms and getting a sort of self-help remedy in, in that way. So I suppose to, to conclude on trademarks, I think if you are a brand owner, you, you've probably got a decision to make. Um, and that decision is whether you sit back and you allow some of these court cases to go through. And essentially what you are waiting to find out is whether the courts are going to say, yeah, there is such a close connection between the sale of um, virtual goods in the metaverse and NFTs compared with um, more traditional physical goods that essentially that those trademarks for physical goods automatically cover uh, the virtual goods and the NFTs, in which case you can leave your portfolio pretty much as it is, or whether um, you jump on this bandwagon which we're currently seeing, which is to actively or proactively go out and start to expand your portfolio to, to add in these are the class nine, class 41, class 42 areas, and actually actually, actually actively look to protect uh, your brands uh, in relation to virtual goods and, and NFTs. I'll hand back over to Mariana, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I think we're 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 done then, then on the issues of um, IP trademarks and copyright. Um, so I think we're having our next speaker now, um, Thane Forbes. So let me just let me just introduce Thane before 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 you start speaking, Thane. So um, uh, Thane is a director in the leading valuation consultancy Intangible Business, who specialises in valuing. All things intangible, which obviously is um, uh, pretty important when it comes to NFTs, particularly given some of the very high values we've seen these things changing hands for. Um, so I'll hand over to to Thane. Thank you, Nick. And um, I think that was a very interesting run through of the commercial and legal issues by uh, Johnny, Mariana, and and Nick, which is always, I think useful to know in the context of what you're valuing and the, where you're valuing it. Anyway, I'm Thane Forbes. Uh, I've specialised in intangible asset valuation for over 20 years. And my work has covered all types of intangible assets from large global brands to small niche, say patents or copyrights. 
which are still valuable in their context. And a common thread with my work is that the IP or intangible assets that I work with are generally highly valuable and often in the context of business acquisitions comprise pretty much the totality of, of the value given to an acquired business. I've also worked in all areas where intangible asset valuations are required. Uh, and that is in broad terms for business development, for dispute resolution, accounting and tax purposes, and some banking and security work. And the way the sort of uh, valuation profession is at the moment is accounting standards have required a huge amount of valuations of intangible assets on acquired businesses. And that has led to a big knowledge base of uh, accounting firms analyzing acquisitions and ascribing values to the intangible assets acquired. Uh, and I'm here today to talk about some of the tricky issues around valuing NFTs. Um, and I'm going to cover it in sort of five areas as set out in this slide. I'm going to talk about a couple of examples because I think that helps uh, bring a sort of concrete uh, way of looking at what you're talking about in theory. Uh, I'm going to talk about what it is that you are valuing, what you have for the NFT rights. I'm going to talk about the, uh, the general um, framework which we apply to valuations, which from my perspective starts with a marketplace context and then goes on to the fourth bullet point, which is how you go about the valuation process and then some of the uh, the difficult issues arising for that, particularly as relates to NFT. But as we will see, a lot of these are common to all forms of intellectual property. Could I have the next slide, please? So the examples I've chosen are fairly early examples of relatively simple NFTs, which you can perhaps understand a bit more easily. So um, William Shatner, the Captain Kirk of Star Trek, he released a number of images from his real life and career, including when he was hugging uh, Dr. Spock. And also a bit bizarrely from my point of view, uh, he also managed to bundle up as NFTs some x-rays of his teeth. And they all sold pretty successfully and um, the benefits to the owners then is one, having bought the NFT, they can then sell them on, they can trade with anyone. Um, because of their nature, they have some guarantee of authenticity, although the legal rights can be uncertain. They can see the ownership and trading history, display them on the social media and look at wish lists of others. And I think that's all potentially useful information from a valuation point of view, is to see a trading history. And another way I think of looking at NFTs is, uh, as Mariana mentioned, um, the copyright of, say, a work of art is not generally transferred when that work of art is sold as an object. 
So the copyright remains with the artist. And the same thing applies when you have limited edition prints or a work of art. And the same applies to NFTs. So if you create NFTs around a work of art, generally the copyright will not be transferred. So it's a way for uh, an original artist to connect with fans and to monetize that relationship and for fans to have a more direct connection with the artist, which I think is, um, is an interesting way of not only increasing influence, but also generating further money for the, um, for the artist directly. And there are some pretty crazy things going on in the NFT marketplace, which you do see from time to time in valuations. And one here, the example I've given is that Jack Torsey, the co-founder of Twitter, he sold uh, his first tweet for $2.9 million. And then the buyer tried to resell it two years later and the highest bid was $280. So that's a, th there's a complete disconnect in perceptions of uh, price there or value. Uh, and when that happens, that obviously gives you big valuation problems. I mean, it wasn't sold for $280 and I think it would be tricky to value it given that type of history. Uh, could I have the next slide please? So in order to value something here, what, what I've put here is, firstly, you need to understand what it is that you're valuing, which for intellectual property is usually difficult and for NFTs is difficult as well. And we have a sort of jigsaw diagram here, which I usually uh, present for all forms of intellectual property, not just NFTs which gives, if you like, a type of a matrix of the, the legal and commercial rights that will, in most instances, act together. So this particular uh, combination could be something larger, but it is centered on the key valuation or legal rights of trademarks, copyrights, designs, and patents. And you need to understand those from a commercial point of view and in the sort of circle around the outside these are more if you like fuzzy areas where the legal rights are not necessarily so clear but they are being deployed in a commercial sense in order to to drive revenues and the, the fact is that these assets work together to drive business opportunities next slide please So once you've been through what it is that you're valuing, I think it's essential here then to think about the context in which you are valuing something, which is uh, the diagram sort of says it first, but the bullet point is about the process, but the diagram is stressing the need to look at it at, in the context of a marketplace in which it would be deployed. So um, for an NFT, you have to look at Firstly, what the rights are, the market in which they would be sold, the sales and profits that could be generated, potentially in combination with something else where I think 
um, would be one of the main applications of NFTs. And then the role of the NFT in the, in the market leading to an analysis of value. And going back to the first bullet point, um, valuation is mostly about forecasting and benchmarking. And forecasts are difficult. They're almost certainly going to be wrong, but they can be well constructed. So at least one can understand an expectation, which is one of the main reasons for buying commercial assets is an expectation of future economic returns. And benchmarking is really saying that uh, for any valuation exercise is largely a comparison exercise. So you're comparing with other transactions or drivers of transaction value. And for NFTs, that's difficult because they're unique. There isn't another one like them. And whilst there is information on NFTs, if you look at OpenSea, it is a good website to explore. There's a huge amount of information. So in this context, you're really looking to cut through that and get out information that is, uh, is useful. Next slide, please. So having been through what, what it is you're valuing and the marketplace context of it, I'm now looking to look here at the process for valuing NFTs, which is exactly the same as for valuing any other type of assets or intellectual property in particular. So I think the best thing is the future economic benefits, income, cash flows, or other benefits. Um, I think also where there is market data, um, that becomes important to look at comparables. Uh, and historical replacement costs are difficult, but conceptually, you could in theory say, well, as an alternative to purchasing an NFT, you could create something equivalent. And the difficulty with that is, is how you measure that anyway. So what were the historic costs or what would replacement costs be? And conceptually, it's not particularly relevant to value. So that really takes you back to looking at future economic benefits and market comparables. And for NFTs, you have the problem that you know, there aren't very many similar assets which you might compare with because they are unique and information on them may be hard to obtain, particularly in this context, in the sort of uh, the sheer volume of information that is out there. But I think when you're doing evaluation as, as we do of intellectual property, uh, if you can get some good information or the best information you can find, even if it is limited or not particularly comparable, um, the whole idea is to produce the best you can so that you can give a better informed analysis of value. And the second bullet point on what we call triangulation, looking at the different methods so you can ideally arrive at a valuation in several different um, ways 
uh, and the components of each way or method uh, may interact to a certain extent. So there is a process here where you sort of blend together the different information and analyses and hopefully come up with something that is more robust because it's not completely built on one set of assumptions. There are alternative ways of looking at it. And at this point, I would say that any evaluation has to be fairly strictly controlled. So it's at a specific date for a particular purpose and it's for a particular audience and it's based on uh, information, assumptions and methodologies that apply those assumptions. Uh, and in the case of intellectual property valuation, normal practices to disclose uh, that information at least to a reasonable extent so people can see um, the basis of any opinion on value and that can then lead to a more informed discussion about what the value might be. Uh, next slide please. A lot of these I've touched on already but when it comes to valuing NFTs you've got to grapple with the key issues that are arising out of them. So uh, from, what I, from what I think, um, the legal rights are going to be problematic, in particular uh, copyright rights. Um, there are also potentially legal problems because an NFT, like Johnny mentioned, may become pretty close to be being defined as a security or a share and therefore regulated. Um, the costs of transacting NFTs can be highly significant compared with their value. Um, but what certainly you need to know what they're likely to be. And at the moment on OpenSea, there's no cost for minting or creating an NFT but there is a charge of two and a half percent for for selling one. Uh, when you're forecasting, there are some very difficult um, changes that you just would not see. So looking at the music industry, when it started off um, on uh, um, say 33 RPM LPs, it then develops into cassettes, CDs, and streaming. Now, with the structure of NFTs, the original artist would still be receiving uh, revenue streams from these new technologies, and the new owners would have to pay them. So, you need to get your mind around how that would uh, how that would impact the uh, the value. They're also very often transacted in cryptocurrencies, mainly Ethereum. And the price of, prices of cryptocurrencies can go up massively, even from day to day, or certainly over a period of a few weeks. Uh, and I think, as I said on the previous slide, building robust cash flow forecasts is particularly difficult for NFTs because they're not always um, bought or valued for the economic benefits, it may be more to say because of 
a desire by a collector to have something or a fan to have something. Um, and that might make cash flow forecasts less relevant. Obtaining comparable data where there are no comparables. Um, obtaining comparable data because it's difficult to obtain. As I said, uh, the best approach on that is to do the best you can. And then, uh, although some people might find a cost analysis interesting, in my view, it's got limited relevance, one of the valuation methods. So uh, thank you. I think that concludes my talk. Back over to you, Nick. Thanks very much, Dane. Uh, really interesting, really good talk. Um, before I hand over to Sean, who is um, who's going to talk about tax, uh, just a quick reminder that uh, if you've got any questions about, about what we've been talking about uh, up till now, do pop them into the Q&A box on, on, on the webinar and we will um, do our very best to answer them at the, at the, end, of, at the end of the webinar. I see we've got quite a few questions coming in already. So last but by no means least is uh, my tax partner, Sean Bannister. Sean leads the Edwin Co. tax team, uh, really specialising in tax issues for high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. Um, so I'll hand over to Sean to talk about uh, key UK tax issues uh, in relation to NFTs. Super. Thank you to that, Nick, and thank you to all the other presenters for uh, <clears throat> their fascinating insights. I've, I've learned quite a lot already. Um, so today we're going to be, as Nick said, we're going to be focused on the tax issues for individuals rather than UK resident corporates. Um, we're going to be covering the three core heads of taxation, which are income tax, capital gains tax, inheritance tax, and make some quick comments around self-assessment and administration that is causing a lot of issues in practice. Um, just some initial comments. Um, firstly, I would note that the area of NFTs in relation to UK taxation is somewhat little explored. Um, we have reasonably swiftly as a profession um, got ahead around most fungible token crypto assets. Um, there continues to be some difficulties between the profession and the UK tax authorities as to how those should be treated. Um, but NFT continues to be a, a pretty evolving landscape. I would note that Revenue have published some guidance on NFTs, which I'll come on to shortly. So there are some helpful indicators as to what they're looking for. But I think um, it would not be unreasonable to say this is relatively untested ground. We are finding with some of our clients that we've had to think of reasonably complex solutions in order to manage some of these issues out. So could we just move on to the next slide, please? So... Income tax. In effect, you're going to have two situations where income tax is going to apply to an individual in relation to NFTs. Firstly, um, for an individual that creates or mints an NFT with a view to sale, um, they are almost certainly going to be subject to income tax. And that makes sense. Effectively, you are creating an asset and then selling it on. The Effectively, the trade is the creation and sale of the asset. And that is an income tax event. The UK's top rate of income tax is 45%. There would also likely be social security issues in relation to that. That happens less frequently. Um, the area where we see most of our work is in the secondary market, where people are acquiring NFTs, holding those NFTs and then selling them on uh, later date for a profit, hopefully, or a loss. Um, 
And at the moment, um, that is most likely to fall within capital gains tax. And I'll come on to some of the details about how you calculate the capital gains tax in a few moments. But there are situations where income tax would apply. Um, we have some pretty well-founded case law referred to as the badges of trade. They equally apply in, in this very new evolving market of NFTs. Um, we still want to go back to some pretty historic cases in order to determine whether a trade is taking place. I think the areas that are going to really help determine whether somebody is trading in NFTs is going to be the profit motive. Um, so the acquisition with a view, to, the acquisition to sale for a profit rather than holding as an, a long-term investment or for the pure joy of the asset. Um, and also the frequency of transactions. I suspect it's always going to be the latter that catch people out. Um, so those are things to be aware of. So if you are acquiring a high volume of NFTs with a view to selling those NFTs swiftly into another secondary market, um, there is a potential argument that income tax will be due. I would note that it is HMRC's current view that crypto asset sales are unlikely to be an income taxable event. Similar arguments exist for people that trade um, in their own personal name in relation to normal traded securities and similarly gambling, uh, which is a different analysis. Um, the reason why it's unlikely to apply is whilst the HMLC and the UK Treasury would have the opportunity to tax the, the profits um, at a higher rate of tax than our current rates of capital gains tax, they'd also have to offer offset for the income losses. And the offset for the income losses could potentially be quite substantial and drive down tax revenues overall. So those are the situations where income tax is most likely to apply. Again, I'm not seeing this so often in practice as it relates to NFTs, but we have seen it in relation to crypto. Um, individuals being offered to receive their bonuses or salary via crypto are still going to be subject to taxation as they normally would be in relation to those amounts as if it was just normal taxable cash that they're receiving. So there would be income tax and social security tax issues to consider if your employer decides to provide a bonus to you in the form of, in the format of an NFT rather than a cash payment. So moving on to the next slide. Um, capital gains tax. Um, again, one of the real positives coming out of HMRC's published guidance is they've, they've started to consider the capital gains tax position for NFTs. Again, it's nowhere near as comprehensive as that for fungible tokens, of which there is now a raft of new, pretty high quality guidance, though noting that we don't necessarily agree with all of it. Um, NFTs are now clearly being treated in a very different way from fungible tokens for the purposes of capital gains tax. The first point is that fungible token, uh, the non-fungible tokens, so NFTs, will not be pooled in the same way that fungible tokens will be. So to put that as an example, say you acquired 15 Bitcoin over a series of years, and then you sold 10 of those Bitcoin um, a few years later, you would have to take the average price of the Bitcoin that you acquired as your base cost or your cost of acquisition when calculating your gain when you come to sell the other, when you come to sell the 10 Bitcoin. That doesn't happen in NFTs. NFTs derive their value from HMRC's perspective from a digital or real asset, and therefore it is a one singular transaction, so there is no pooling. Similarly, from a computational perspective, you are able to include your acquisition costs, again, as, as Thane alluded to, and 
Um, those costs can be relatively substantial um, in relation to selling those assets on and also acquiring those assets. So there are reasonably significant acquisition costs and disposal costs that could potentially include in your CGT calculation. Um, it's important to note that um, the current rate of CGT, which would apply to an NFT, is 20%. There are certain situations where there are higher rates of capital gains tax, but they aren't relevant in these particular scenarios. Um, for those who aren't actively um, filing for capital gains tax purposes, it's, again, it's important to note that CGT is calculated on a net gain loss position over the course of a year. So effectively, your NFT gains and losses will be added to all your other gains and losses for the year. And once you have a net gain loss position, that will then be subject to taxation at the end of the tax year. So that's broadly how it works from a capital gains tax perspective. And I'm quite pleased to see there is some guidance there. Um, but it could it could be um, it could be um, a little bit more comprehensive. One issue um, that we are finding on capital gains tax, and could we just move on to the next slide, please? Is that capital gain tax situs is important? Now, it's very rarely important for most taxpayers, but there are certain taxpayers who are non-domiciled who do not pay tax on their foreign gains. So, situs becomes very important for those individuals. HMRC's current view is that for an NFT, it's the situs of the asset to which the NFT derives its value, which is tied, so the digital asset or real asset, it's where that is located that determines where it is situated for tax purposes. Now, for a real asset, that's relatively simple. It is where that real asset is located. Obviously, there may be some complications in where that real asset is located, but broadly, that's not too difficult to understand. Where you have a digital asset, there is increasing, well, there's significant complexity because it's very difficult to determine where that digital asset is located for the purposes of tax. And then I think what you have to then do is go back to sort of first principles on establishing where that digital asset is located. So it all becomes quite complicated. I know that these are only issues for non-domiciled individuals, but they are important to know. And it's again, it's something where we're having to provide quite a lot of active advice for our client base. Um, can we move on to the next slide, please? For inheritance tax purposes, um, an NFT is an asset, um, and therefore it forms part of your estate. Inheritance tax is an estate tax or a death duty, you want to have a better way of expressing it, and therefore that NFT will be taxable in your death estate. The current rate of UK inheritance tax is 40%, subject to a number of different exemptions and also nil rate bans. But... Broadly, we're looking at a 40% tax charge, and depending on the value of the NFT, which could be very high at the time of your death, there may be significant tax costs um, related to those NFTs. Um, so the NFT has value, and therefore it's within your death estate, and therefore subject to taxation. I think that's, there's, only, there's only really those things to say in relation to the NFT itself. Um, again, we do have issues around CITUS um, for inheritance tax. The way that inheritance tax works is it focuses on two things. One is the domicile of the individual who is making the transfer, so often the deceased, um, and the location of the asset itself. Now, HMRC's guidance is unfortunately less clear about where the CITES for IHT purposes is. Um, it goes back to standard private client law considerations um, and the law of private property. And therefore you have to 
look at those issues in order to determine where that asset is located. And that means we're looking at you know, where that right was created, what the, what the law of jurisdiction from an enforceability perspective will be, et cetera, et cetera. So there's quite a lot of complexity around that. What we're finding for clients where it is, where there are situs issues, whether it be because of domicile or whether it be because they may have concern that their NFT is located in the UK or it might be unclear and they have no other connection to the UK. What we're finding is we're talking to clients about overseas trusts, foreign partnerships and overseas companies to hold these assets in order to determine the situs because with the location of the holding vehicle that will determine the situs of the asset rather than this slightly unclear regime um, that applies currently. And again, as I think Johnny and Thane and Nick and Mariana have all said, this is a constantly evolving area. And with all that change, the ability to keep on top of this is somewhat limited. Um, and the ability, you know, the ability to take active advice, especially in relation to one's estate, is difficult. And therefore, having the holding vehicle may be the best way to resolve some of these issues. Um, going forward. So that's something that we're seeing in practice uh, and an area where we're providing a lot of advice, um, in particular, again, for non-domicile clients. Um, we move to the last side and talk about self-assessment administration. So um, again, we, we touched on um, issues for UK resident but non-UK domicile clients who are claiming the remittance basis of taxation. We are finding um, as a general issue that um, clients who haven't considered this before they've entered into NFT transactions or crypto transactions um, are struggling um, with the analysis that applies and are finding that they're having some disappointing results. Um, and therefore, um, I think my view is that if you are interested in doing this in a, in a substantial way and investing substantial amounts of capital into these market spaces, that you take advice beforehand and consider which vehicles are best for in, in order to enact these transactions, if not just in your own personal name. Um, you are almost certainly going to have an obligation to file a tax return if you dispose of an NFT asset, um, equally with a, a standard fungible token crypto asset. Um, and you will have to then consider how the proceeds of that gain loss are reported, to tax, reported for tax. As mentioned, there are situations where income tax will apply. If there is a risk that income tax will apply, you may want to make some white space disclosure as to why you feel that there is no argument that income tax applies. Um, and also you will have to retain the records in order to demonstrate to HMRC that um, the costs that you've used for cost of acquisition, cost of disposal, et cetera, are accurate. I think we're seeing some individuals enter the market space and offering good software to be able to try and bring all this data together. Again, I have to say, in particular, again, more in the fungible token space and the NFT space, the data we're getting back um, is somewhat complicated and somewhat difficult from an analysis and administration perspective. So there's some issues with the market catching up to facilitate you know, the proper filing and the, the proper uh, administration of one's individual's taxes. And there is some complexity. There is almost certainly some opportunity for great commercial returns, but planning around that is the way forward. So I think that is a brief whistle-stop tour around um, taxation of NFTs for individuals. And it looks as if Sean has frozen, probably just as it comes to the end of his, um, comes to the end of his presentation. So that's, that's very well-timed indeed. But uh, Sean, thank you very much indeed, uh, if you can hear me. <laughs> 
and, and thank you to thank you to all, all of the speakers. Uh, we have we are coming towards sort of half past five, and I'm very conscious that it's got a nice warm, sunny day um, in, in London at least. But um, we've have we have a number of questions come in, so I wonder if we just spend a few minutes. Um, going through some of these questions. Uh, we may not have time for all of them and we, we can pick them up separately um, afterwards. But if we just have a quick look at the questions, let's see what we can, um, what we can easily answer. Um, perhaps if I take them in order. Um, so the, fir the first one I suspect was asked before Thane gave his talk, but uh, I, and hopefully Thane has answered it. But the first question is, um, what would you say are the main drivers of NFT value? I don't know if you want to say a few words about that thing. Um, yeah, I think uh, when you're looking at NFT value, you need to look at it in a, a fairly broad context. But the sort of framework which I say would indicate the drivers of value are firstly relevance to the potential buyer, um, then secondly, the extent to which is differentiated from other alternatives, something which is different is going to be more valuable um, potentially than something which is the same as other alternatives. And then thirdly, uh, in terms of value drivers, consistency in terms of message and presentation is, is essential. Perfect. Thanks, 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 Dane. Um, uh, there's one here that I suspect is really for Johnny. Um, now, Johnny, I'm trying, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but let, let me ask the question. And if you want to deal with it, I'll sort of offline, that's entirely up to you. Um, and the question is could you point out the difference between a tokenized security that might be created to wrap a share with a smart contract to represent ownership plus rights in an organization, fund, or revenue stream? And an NFT. So that's a fairly complicated question, but I don't know if you can do anything with it in, a, in, a, in, a, in 30 seconds or so, Johnny. Thanks, Nick. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Mr. Podmore. Typical bloody long-winded question from you. Um, just wish we weren't doing a virtual question. I really could wring your neck. Um, this is the problem. What I was saying earlier on about a blurring of lines between um, an unregulated non-fungible token and a, and a regulated security. Um, and I, I think this is a, a real challenge. I have seen examples where um, in the real estate, whereby they're effectively saying, we will give you a non-fungible token and that non-fungible token has no equity rights. Um, and it's purely, you will have a share of the profits as and when we sell this commercial property. Um, they have refused to send me the legal um, recommendation that they've been given. They assure me they've got it. Um, but that would be an example of something which, quite frankly, would appear to be a security. Um, or again, as I touched on earlier on, the problem is creating a collective investment vehicle. And if you have common ownership of an asset, which very often happens when you have securities, you own part of the company, part of the house, part of the commodity. And, and you, you, you may not have the, the security itself may not be regulated in the sense of property, but you may end up creating a... Um, a collective investment vehicle and that then becomes regulated so sorry not not a not a yes no answer but then wasn't exactly a straightforward question <laughs> either so uh thanks Steve. but thank glad you enjoyed the webinar thanks for your uh 
thanks for your comments yeah let's just um th thanks th thanks thanks very much johnny um so there's a couple there's a there's a couple of questions here which um sort of dig into to copyright ownership let me, and let me just um let me just read those and then either myself or Marianne and I'll have a go answering them. Yeah, so yeah, it's, a, it's a question in, I'll put them both together. Uh, mm -hmm. The question is, would you say, would you say that copyright ownership is artificially created by NFT platforms? Uh, in my opinion, if I buy an NFT, I'd want the full ownership of it. What's your view? And then a sort of follow-up question from the, from the same person. Uh, is it mandatory? That the originator will always hold the copyright can can the copyright not be transferred to the new buyer do you want to have a go at that mariana or yeah i think i'll just uh give it a go and then perhaps you could add uh, anything that i've missed out on i think oh. the obvious one is to say um as per my presentation that you obviously don't own the copyright in the original piece of art that um is attached to the NFT. So what you effectively are purchasing is the, is the NFT, this actual token, you're not purchasing the underlying copyright and the underlying artwork. If you want the copyright, you need to get an assignment or a license. So if you want a full right, a full copyright to it, then you, of course you want an assignment for that you need uh, to have a written agreement. So copyright assignments are, uh, are, are only to be made in writing. So you can't do it verbally. Um, if you want a full, full full ownership of the underlying artwork, you make an assignment um, of the underlying copyright, sorry. Um, so whether it's um, artificially created by NFT platforms, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> what do you think on that, Nick? I think it's, it's a philosophical question here. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 don't, I do sort of understand the, I understand the sort of slight frustration in the question. I mean, I, I suppose, as you said, Mariana, um, buying an NFT, um, it, I suppose it's more akin to buy, buying, an, buying an original painting or an original artwork. Um, you know, you just, you just take the physical possession of that painting. You don't, you don't get the right to reproduce it, to make prints of it. So there's the, that's the analogy in the real world. Um, I don't, however, see. I don't think there's any problem in, or there's no reason why you sh why that purchase of the NFT shouldn't also transfer the copyright. Um, I mean, the requirement for copyright assignment is that you know it's it's in it's in writing. Um, so there's no reason that the that the smart that the smart contract that comes with the NFT should shouldn't also assign the copyright. It's just that that's not generally done. Um, so there's no reason why you shouldn't sort of create your NFT on the basis that the copyright moves with the NFT. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not, as I say, it's not generally done. And I guess to use the analogy of a sort of a real world painting, real world picture, you know, when, if you were lucky enough to go and buy the Mona Lisa, you wouldn't expect to buy the copyright in the Mona Lisa if, if there was copyright in it. Uh, it just, it just that's just not what the industry industry does. But there's no reason in practice why you, why you couldn't do it. Um, so hopefully that's yeah, yeah. Just to just to conclude on that smart contract, um, it, it's usually it's it's in practical terms quite difficult to put enough terms into the smart contract. So it's always advised to have if you are thinking of having it um, to have a, a separate 
full full on contract on the copyright assignment or licensing indeed whatever you're thinking of perfect um and i've got some we've got some comeback on that which is pro probably best dealt with offline um perhaps we just do one more question because i'm just conscious of time um let me just let me just choose a, a, a question um so oh, a good question actually again again it's more of a legal question but but quite sort of but 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 quite sort of pertinent and the question is i am a digital artist what should i do if i find out someone is selling an nft of my art presumably without 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 the artist's permission um is that another one for you mariana i think uh, yeah, well, perhaps I could answer that. So um, if if you find out that someone's selling an NFT of your art without your permission, um, again, I, I think I've briefly mentioned that in the first place, I'd recommend contacting the platform itself. Um, as we have seen precedents that I think Nick mentioned that um, contacting, contacting OpenSea perhaps uh, would remove the uh, fraudulent NFT from the platform. So that will stop uh, instantly um, the uh, fraudulent um, NFT generating profits for the fraudster. So that's, that's a good first call. You could of course also apply for uh, injunctions to court. Uh, again, we've seen uh, that an NFT is, is now officially recognized as property in the UK, so you can do so. Um, and yeah, basically you can resort to court, but I think in the first place, in the most cost-effective solution, I'd probably start with contacting the platform. And you may want to consider if you are a digital artist generally to have some sort of a monitoring system in place uh, to make sure that you monitor for any uh, fraudulent postings of uh, NFTs of your artworks, as this does tend to happen these days. Uh, so it is something just to be aware of. Um, do you want to add anything, Nick? No, no, I think that's um, pretty comprehensive. Um, I think what I'm, we have lots more questions coming in, but let, let, let's, um, given that it is getting a bit late and we've, we've been sort of going for just over an hour and a half, let's um, sort of draw stumps there. Uh, in terms of people who've sent in questions, which we haven't answered and the questions are still coming in, we will do our very best collectively to um to get back to you separately with, with answers to those questions um a uh, couple of pieces of housekeeping firstly big thank you to all of the speakers uh particularly to thane and johnny um from outside of open co but equally to um to, to sean on the tax issues and, and mariana on ip and copyright um and finally i suppose proof that you don't get anything for nothing in this world as as you log off of zoom you should be presented with a short questionnaire um it would be really useful if you wouldn't mind just answering that just just give us another sort of 30 seconds of your time and um and, 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 and answer those questions um before you go you go you go to your go to your evening um but yeah but thank you very much everybody and, and thank you for so many of you many of you for staying with us um, for what has been quite a lengthy webinar. Thank you very much. Thank you.